This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierrosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're beginning chapter 14. The Bible contains many portraits of leadership. Some are very good examples. Others are not. That can make people uncomfortable when they find a bad example in the Bible. But God is unapologetic about showing the flaws and frailties of fallen humanity. They help us all understand just how broken we are. And they should help us drop the facade that we have it all put together. Today, we'll see a stark contrast between bad leadership and good. And we'll come face to face with the question, what kind of leader do I want to be? My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 14 read like this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus." So let's look at the characters of this opening scene of Matthew 14 and see what Scripture has to tell us here. We immediately see here a contrast. I hope you identify that as we were reading. We have a contrast between faithfulness and fear. The faithfulness of the prophet of God, the forerunner of Christ, that landed him in jail and ultimately to his martyrdom. And then the fear of a tetrarch here, a wicked and weak leader. That's the message that I want us to look at today. So let's then look at each of the characters, and there are at least four characters in this scene here, and see what the Bible says. First of all, I want you to see in verses 1 through 2, a confused tetrarch. Now Matthew makes a time reference here, if you notice in the beginning, he says, at that time. It's a general time reference, doesn't necessarily follow chapter 13. Keep that in mind, because remember, Matthew is not concerned with chronology. He's more concerned with theme, so he organizes his gospel in theme. If you want to look at a consecutive order of events, go to Luke. But Matthew introduces a new character to the story here for us, Herod Antipas. Now, it's not the same guy that we met in the beginning of the gospel, chapter 2, that killed every baby in the area because he wanted to kill Jesus Christ. And there's a new term here too, tetrarch. That means someone who rules a fourth of a kingdom, not the entire kingdom. That would be a monarch. So we know that this guy only had jurisdiction of a fourth of the area here. And really, he was more of a puppet leader than anything else because the governor of the province of Judea at this time was Pontius Pilate. 
Remember, we're going to see him again later on. But he is the son of Herod the Great, the one in chapter 2 who actually founded the Herodian dynasty. So really, local ruler would have been a more appropriate title for this man here, Antipas. Certainly more than a king, he was not a king, even though Antipas had jurisdiction over Galilee. Again, we will see that when we go to the Passion Week there. That's the man who wanted to see Jesus when he was arrested because of his convoluted fascination with Christ. But what is interesting here in the first characterization exercise that we're doing here is that Herod's heart sank with fear when he heard about Christ. That's what Matthew is telling us because he thought that this was the reincarnated John the Baptist. Well, he's doing that because of a guilty conscience, because he ordered the execution of the baptizer. Luke actually records this man's agony. Listen to his words in Luke 9, verses 7 through 9. Herod says this, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? He's troubled. He's confused. He's thinking, who is this man? He's, he's got miraculous powers. Is this John back from the dead to torment me? Clearly, the ministry of the recently dispatched disciples had reached the courts of this civil leader. Now, equally... Many people today are confused, they are curious about the person of Christ, but they don't come to the right conclusion, just like Herod. Some folks today believe he is no more than an enlightened leader. Have you heard that before? Jesus is just a great leader. I will pick and choose whatever is comfortable for me at the time. I will pick and choose whatever teachings fit my predisposed understanding. So like a buffet... I will take some teachings from Christ, some teachings from Buddha, some teachings from Confucius, and I will be confused just like Confucius. (laughs) They select whatever principles fit their convenience. And don't you dare confront their misunderstanding of truth. Other people think that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. We've all heard that before from well-meaning people who knock on our doors. Of course, nothing can be further from the truth. That's not what the Bible says. We need to be able to identify that and point out to them, no, you have the wrong view of Jesus. Your fascination with Christ, uh, it's admirable. However, you are lost and you need to be saved. Other people are fascinated with Jesus. They insist not that he is, but that he was and is no more. They say there's no resurrection. Well, all of these contradict scripture, of course, and cause people to miss the kingdom of heaven, just like this confused tetrarch here. He missed the kingdom of heaven because his fascination with Christ wasn't humble. It wasn't his desire to worship him, but it was more of a weird, convoluted, guilt-motivated fascination. But I want you to see second here. The story not only introduces us to a confused tetrarch, but there's a confined prophet in verse 3. Notice the change in Matthew's literary style here. He starts telling the story in flashback. So, He already informed his readers about the incarceration of the forerunner of Christ. That is in chapter 11, verse 2. And now he shares the reason. What happened was that Tetrarch had originally married the daughter of an Arabian king, but he left her for Herodias. And Herodias was the wife of his half-brother Philip. This divorce, when Herod divorced this daughter of this Arabian king to marry Herodias, it caused an international conflict that Rome had to intervene. Otherwise, Herod would have been in big trouble. But John landed in jail because he had the courage to confront this. He had the courage to confront the sin of a civil leader. 
And the baptizer's boldness may not seem all that remarkable today because remember, we live in a society that allows us to do that. You are free to criticize your governor without the fear of repercussions or without the fear of being retaliated against. Now, it doesn't mean you should do it, but in this case here, John the Baptist had, his courage was even more remarkable because he didn't have the right to petition his government like we do today. First century Roman society granted these tetrarchs an incredible amount of freedom to arrest critics, and that's exactly what happened. John the Baptist confronted the sins of some magistrates here, and as a result, he was arrested. But remember, he's not doing anything new. He started his ministry pointing out people's need to repent. Political as well as religious leaders heard from him. Remember that in Matthew, in the beginning of the gospel, Matthew 3, verses 1 through 2. His message has been the same. So he wasn't really popular from the beginning of his ministry because he was already confronting religious leaders, calling them out and saying, the axe is at the root of the tree. If you don't repent, you will be judged. But it wasn't just his personal preference. It was based on scripture. Now, although less severe, the dangers of confronting a sinful culture remain today. Few of us will experience the same level of opposition that John did. I I doubt that any of us here will end up in jail for calling out the sins of our society here, but we may be going to the politically correct jail or the cancellation jail. And that is the reason why people are so hesitant to confront sin, because we know the consequences of that. We don't want to be labeled. We don't want to be called intolerant. We don't want to be called Bible thumper, fundamentalist, fundies, whatever else they call us these days. We don't want to be marginalized from that. We want to be seen as a force to be reckoned with. But church, God will have us do what he wants us to do, even if we're at the margins of society. And there's nothing better than to be at the margin of society, being faithful to God. He doesn't need to put us in the center of society to accomplish his purposes. He will build his church, Jesus promised, no matter what we do. If if we're not faithful, he will raise up other people to build his church. So our job is to be faithful and to confront sin. There's a right way and a wrong way to do that. John the Baptist had absolutely no regard for self-perception or for self-preservation. And that is why I admire him so much. And Jesus says he's the greatest man who ever lived, apart from Christ, obviously. But let me talk to you about the third aspect of our characterization study here in this passage. Verse 4, not only we have a confused tetrarch, a confined prophet, but look, verse 4, we have a courageous preacher. Matthew describes the exact content of the message of John the Baptist that landed him in jail. And the content of the message is that Herod had an illicit marriage. And it's not only the divorce that was the problem, because Leviticus 20, verse 21, talks about the sin of incest. Listen to this. Leviticus 20, verse 21 says this, If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. See, the divorce wasn't the only problem in this illicit union between Herod Antipas and Herodias. Check this out. Herodias was related to him by blood, as her name suggests. She was the daughter of a man called Aristobulus, one of the sons of Herod the Great. She had married her father's brother, Philip, therefore her uncle. Now, she left one incestuous relationship to join another illicit marriage. And the verb tense in verse 4 here, for John had been saying to him, and it is not lawful for you to have her. The verb tense here gives us the implication that John repeated the message over and over. This wasn't a one-time deal. He was repeating that message over and over again to the point of annoyance that landed him in jail. So church, here's a lesson here. Strong, 
faithful leaders confront sin repeatedly to the point of annoyance. For them, commitment to the truth trumps self-preservation in public perception precisely because these types of leaders do not care about what people will think and they do not base their message on personal or political opinions. See, John wasn't saying, I don't like that because it's my personal preference. That wasn't the message. The message is, you are violating God's standard. It is not lawful for you to have her according to God's law. Church, that's the kind of preacher I want to be. I'd rather present God's perspective on a sin or on an issue rather than my opinion. My opinion doesn't matter. What matters is what God says. We all have different opinions about different issues, different sin issues. What I want to know is what God says. Tell me what God says. Don't tell me your opinion. Tell me what the Word of God says and lead me to the truth. That's the kind of preacher I want to be. Because what God says transcends time and location. In other words, what the Bible says stands true regardless of when it was written. An ancient tetrarch will not get away with redefining marriage. The U.S. Supreme Court will not get away with redefining marriage either. It is not lawful to do that according to God's eyes. So God will call to account everyone who violates his definition of the family because that is the issue here. That is the reason why John went to jail. Which leads us to the next point here in our study of characters in this particular scene. We've identified a confused tetrarch, a confined prophet, a courageous preacher. And now in verse 5, we have a cowardly leader. And that's the difference I want us all to see. The courage of John versus the fear of Herod Antipas here. The cowardly nature of this man. He did not care for God's standard of marriage, obviously. So he had John arrested. According to Mark 6, verse 17, and bound in prison, check this out, on account of Herodias. In other words, this is what his wife wanted him to do. When we read the harmonized version of this account in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we have here is a clear picture of a cowardly man, a man who is indecisive. He's not sure what to do. He's afraid of John. He's afraid of the crowds. He has a guilty conscience. He's manipulated easily. So what do we have here, church? A fearful man in leadership. That's a problem. Leaders who allow fear or the distressing emotions that come from it to control our actions usually end up damaging relationships and careers and reputations and even churches when we lead by fear, when we allow fear to take over. Antipas had all the hallmarks of such a bad leader who leads by fear. He should have released John from prison. That would have been the right thing to do. But his indecisiveness made him follow the counsel of his manipulative wife. His desire to appease her more than to do the right thing led to the murder of an innocent. You see, again, fear. Because of fear, he decided, I'm going to follow the wicked advice of this woman rather than follow what God says. And as a result, he murdered an innocent man. By the way, according to Roman law and Jewish law, you could not execute someone without a trial. But that's what he did. Bad leaders make decisions based on appeasement rather than true conviction. They usually sacrifice belief for the sake of diplomacy. Now, what else can we learn from the life of this insecure leader here, this tetrarch? We've identified a confused tetrarch, a confined prophet, a courageous preacher, and a cowardly leader. But I want you to see here, verses 6 through 7, a careless stepfather. 
Mark provides the details of this birthday feast, this drunken bash here. The main event of this birthday party featured a teenager dancing provocatively. The name of this teenager is Salome, according to Josephus, a historian. She was dancing suggestively, provocatively for the VIP male guests of this party. At some point in the party, an intoxicated Herod made a false promise and the biggest mistake of his term. Whatever you ask of me, he says, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Which, by the way, is a lie. He had no kingdom. But the point is, he's overpromising because he's intoxicated with wine, perhaps, but with lust and power. And that church is a hallmark of weak leadership. Weak leaders make hasty decisions like that. They don't think things through. They don't consider the consequences of how their choices will affect others. Here's a foundational principle that we learn from this. Do not get inebriated, whether by alcohol, by legal or illegal substances, or by prescription drugs, or with power or lust. Why? Because you will make major mistakes. You will make major errors in judgment. You might make promises you can't keep or you shouldn't have made in the first place. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit leads us believers. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with wine. Paul instructs, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5 verse 18. Peter agrees, he writes in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, always stay alert, stay sober. And again, people can get intoxicated with uh, alcohol and different substances, but power, lust, fear is also paralyzingly intoxicating. Self-centeredness is intoxicating. Anxiety can be intoxicating. Worrying too much can be intoxicating. That's why the, the scripture says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And church, if you're a believer in Christ, you already have the Holy Spirit living in you. You don't have a second dose of the Holy Spirit. You don't need a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. That's not in the Bible. What you need to do, and you know, what I need to do, is allow the Holy Spirit to control our emotions, to control our actions, to control our words even, and we all fail at this from time to time. Herod should have never exposed his stepdaughter to the lust of drunken men, of his VIP guests, and his own lust. Self-control is a hallmark of strong spiritual leadership, and by the way, a fruit of the Spirit. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So after a confused tetrarch, a confined prophet, a courageous preacher, a cowardly leader, and a careless stepfather, let's look at the next aspect of this characterization study we're doing today, verses 8 through 11. We have a calculating mother. And ladies, this is a bad example. Don't ever follow the example of this woman here, okay? Herodias may have insisted that her husband execute John because that's what she wanted. But because Herod hesitated, she recruited her daughter to manipulate him with her sensuality and charm. Can you think of anything more wicked than this? Herodias was determined to get what she wanted no matter who she used and no matter who she hurt in the process. She wanted John dead even if that cost her daughter's dignity and decency. In church, before we get too judgmental here, let's not think that we would never commit such a heinous sin. Because remember, on the day you will say, Pastor, I would never do that. You're in trouble. Because that's what Peter did. 
And not too long after he said that to Jesus Christ, he stepped on a spiritual banana peel. So let's not think we would never commit such a gross sin. Sometimes we do manipulate people. You may not even know it. You've done it before. I've done it before. Subconsciously, sometimes consciously, calculating like this mother did. But sometimes we do it without even noticing it. It's because of the sin in our hearts. People use their looks to manipulate people. We use our position to manipulate people. Sometimes our intelligence, our titles, or money. But now that Herod has been trapped, he had to save face after making such a silly promise and an irrevocable oath. He didn't want to show his fear to his guests. That is why he's making mistake upon mistake here. A godly man would have realized that and would have said, you know what? Stop. I need to correct this mistake here. I made a silly promise. I need to go back because that violates the word of God. It doesn't matter what I said. If what I said violated the word of God, I need to not follow through with it. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to make the right choices and to start over and to correct a mistake. He should have admitted, I jumped the gun. But he was too proud to do that because he wanted to save face and he doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of his people there. He didn't want to show weakness or whatever the case is, but he should have admitted, I jumped the gun. I'm not going to murder an innocent man because of this, because my wife is asking me to do it or because this teenage daughter is dancing provocatively in front of me. And having someone's head on a platter was meant to display cruelty and humiliation. We use that term today. But what that means is is to not just martyr someone. It's to humiliate someone. It's to see, I have total control over your life. And that is what is meant here. But regardless of the gruesomeness of John's martyrdom, I want you to see here that this scene ends on a moving and a touching note. We saw a confused tetrarch, a confined prophet, a courageous preacher, a cowardly leader, a careless stepfather, a calculating mother. But now the last component of this scene here, again, in such a moving note, is a celebrated legacy. Verse 12, a celebrated legacy. Many people hated the baptizer because of his commitment to the truth, because of his love for God and his outspoken personality, his commitment with the Word of God, his commitment to the holiness of God, his faithfulness to his call, But he had loyal friends. His disciples did exactly what he taught them. And that's the legacy of a a godly man. His disciples followed his example even after his death because his disciples are running to Jesus. His disciples are saying, not that the dream is over. Let's do what he taught us to do. Let's run to Jesus Christ in our moment of distress. They looked for Jesus, the Bible says, in the hour of distress And again, church, that is the legacy of strong leaders. Their legacy is not about them. Strong leaders lead people to Christ. And their followers keep going to Jesus Christ even after the leader is gone. Because if you haven't noticed, every man of God one day will be buried. The size of their crowd, the size of their following doesn't matter. What matters is their one overarching goal, which directs every decision they make, every lesson they preach, every dollar they donate, Every minute they spend serving God, and that is the goal, to lead people to Christ. For me to decrease so that Christ can increase. He is mightier than I am. Don't look to me, look at Jesus Christ. That is the legacy of godly leaders. In church, many of you share this passion here that John displayed, the passion to decrease 
while Jesus Christ increases. The passion not to build your own platform, but to be his platform. The contentment with being unknown. The contentment with being a nobody for Christ. Many of you share that, and I admire you for that. Don't let your legacy change. Keep doing that. You will get in trouble for calling people to repent and for leading them to Jesus Christ. You will be criticized. People will slander your good name all over this town. But keep up the legacy. Some of you have done time in the politically correct jail. Some of you will be doing time. You are now sitting on trial for your faithfulness to Jesus Christ with the moral revolutionaries. May your tribe multiply. May your kind increase greatly. Our church needs folks like you. We cover the seven elements of character study here in this particular scene. A confused tetrarch, a confined prophet, a courageous preacher, a cowardly leader, a careless stepfather, a calculating mother, and a celebrated legacy. So what's the takeaway? If you don't remember a word I said this morning here, here's what I'd like you to remember. Weak and wicked leaders lead by fear. Spiritually strong leaders lead by faithfulness. So what kind of leader do you want to be? You say, Pastor, I don't think I'm a leader. Oh, yes, you are. If you're a father, you're a leader. If you're a husband, you're a leader. If you're a wife, you're a leader. If you're a daughter, you're a leader. If you are someone who has friends, you're a leader. You have the potential of influencing people. So what kind of leader do you want to be? If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.